Please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6 as we continue our study of John's gospel, the life of Jesus, and even this particular chapter. Today, though, perhaps more than most weeks, you are probably thinking you are glad you are not me. It may be that you don't want to speak in front, but, uh, you know, following the kids, uh, leading us in that. Since I can't top that, my hope will be at the very least to kind of bring to light the reason their hosannas are are worthy uh, to be offered to our Lord this morning. So we'll begin our reading, John 6, verse 35. Uh, Ken covered that uh, thoroughly last week, but in terms of the context, we'll begin 35, reading through verse uh, 59 this morning. John 6, 35. Hear the word of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This, as the, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. May the Lord bless us 
and give us understanding from his word. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, as we come to this text, both long and difficult in many ways, we pray that by your spirit you would not only enlighten our minds to understand what Jesus said, but you would work in our hearts that we might receive and delight in the truth that Jesus has communicated and the gift that you have given us in the person of Jesus. As we consider this word, may you enable us to see Jesus, to behold him for who he is, and to experience every promise that he lays out for those who trust in him. To the glory of your grace, the praise of Christ's name, and the good of we who are gathered here this morning, we pray. Amen. If there was some way, if we could somehow come to this passage without having ever heard any of these things that Jesus has said before, without any predisposed ideas of what Jesus is talking about, and came to this text as if we heard Jesus speaking to us for the first time, we would probably have a pretty good understanding of why John 6 opens with Jesus at the height of his popularity and ends with Jesus virtually alone, surrounded only by his disciples, and even they were grumbling. We see politicians soar and crash in their approval ratings, and yet Jesus' approval rating had tanked in the course of just one day. Just a day earlier, Jesus was on the other side of the water, and all the people were gathered around him. You may remember that it just as, a, as the uh, Passover was approaching, Jesus was withdrawing with his disciples to get away from the crowds, to recover, to recharge from the ministry they had engaged in, certainly understanding that during Passover there would be more ministry and opportunities to, uh, to engage in that could also become draining. And even as he left to withdraw from the people, the people followed him. And he, seeing them being far away from any restaurants, first he taught them, and then recognizing that they were hungry, he fed them miraculously, as we see highlighted in the feeding of the 5,000. And even as a few weeks ago we looked at that passage, we recognized that the 5,000 is only the heads of households, so it was more like feeding of 20,000 people that had gathered. And then when the people recognized what he had done, in addition to how he had taught, were told that they wanted to make him both their religious leader and their king, and they were willing to do violence in order to make that, which means they, Jesus was kind of saying no, and they didn't want taking that no for an answer, and they were willing to force him to be their king. And Jesus' response to this was to send them all away and to withdraw from them. And now here a day later, which seems to us, because we've been looking at these passages for almost a month now, but it's only the next day Jesus encounters the people again. They're a little surprised because they knew that he had sent them away and he had gone and his disciples had left in a boat. They didn't know how he had gotten there and so they approach him and he, they ask him how he had gotten there and then he essentially insults them. When they ask how he got there, he basically said, well, your, your motives for asking are suspect. 
And then he goes into this discourse that we see today. So not, not only as the people are still stung in their disappointment from being denied and perhaps their, their confusion as to what he's talking about, then Jesus goes into this narrative that we have before us and then offends their sensibilities. And consequently, he who they wanted to make king the day before, they didn't want anything to do with. But if we were to look at this passage this morning, and if we do, as we dig in, if we were, are to listen and we are to see, what we will see that is in these verses, Jesus takes us about as deep as he can possibly take us. Because this is a passage that is profound in its doctrinal revelation, the truths about Jesus, his mission, and how we relate to him. And as we see these passages before us too, what we will also see is that Jesus gives us a reason for both a radical confidence and a radical humility that is rooted in the radical call of the gospel upon the lives of those who would follow him. And as we work our way through this passage, there are three key phrases that I will use to kind of mark where we are because each of them introduces a, a, a new portion of Jesus' revelation to us that will consider uh, uh, the text that surrounds them. And the first one we see that is, is in verse 35. Uh, I am the bread of life. Ken talked about this at length last week, so I won't go into great detail with it, but it is important not only for context, because, but it's also part of the foundation that we must understand if we're going to understand everything else that Jesus says that comes after. But Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in this, Jesus is making the unmistakable, unmistakable, you got the idea, um, self-identifying claim that he is God. The words that he declares, ego I me, I am, would have rung and stung in the ears of the people who heard him. There was no mistaking what he was declaring. And John records that Jesus repeats this. And so there's a series of statements where Jesus is declaring, I am. Not only identifying himself in a descriptive way, but each time reinforcing the declaration that he is the living and true God come in the flesh. And the fact in the case that Jesus goes on in, in that verse and then talks about I'm the bread of life and whoever, whoever uh, believes in me will not go hungry and, I, and, and they will never thirst. The fact that he is declaring himself to be God and also the one who we find fulfillment in both our, for our hunger and thirst, he's declaring he is God, and he in him, and in him alone, will we find the satisfaction that we desire in this life. It's an absolutely amazing claim that really is unmistakable. And so when you run across people who would declare that as their studies of the Bible, that they, Jesus never declares to be God, this itself is a clear indication that they either never read the Bible or they don't know what the Bible is teaching because it's unmistakable that Jesus is declaring that. And it's not only unmistakable to us looking from now, it was unmistakable in that day because as you look at the passage, you see the people grumbling. And we'll see that in just a moment. They're grumbling about this claim. They know very well what it is that he is saying. And they were offended by it. But Jesus goes on 
in response to their grumbling. We see in verse 37, the second of the framing statements. Jesus declares, all the Father gives to me will come to me. In fact, let's just read the, the passage. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then we see with that bold statement that Jesus makes, that's when the people had enough and they begin to grumble, and they do so in a way that's not that, you know, well, it's just not nice. You know, they grumble and they start talking about his parentage. Now, as things go, this is nicer than the way they talk about his parentage is at other times, because at least here they're saying, this is confusing to us. This guy, he's claiming that he is God who has come in the flesh and that he's the one that God has sent. He is the fulfillment for our lives. Isn't this Joseph and Mary's child? I mean, didn't he play t-ball with our kids? Now, so how can, he, how can he be the living and true God? Now, other times when they question Jesus' parentage, they don't talk about Joseph at all. And the clear implication in some of those cases is, you know, his background is questionable. He he came into this world not by socially and morally acceptable ways. And so the people have this tendency to, to grumble, to justify, to assign blame. And, and so we see very clearly that what Jesus is saying strikes them. And he responds with another statement that has to be seen to go along with the statement that everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. And we see that as we pick up in verse 43. Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we have two very bold statements that Jesus is making here. One is, everyone the Father gives him is going to come, and no one will come unless the Father draws them to Jesus. So we would ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus is talking about here? The simple answer, the most concise answer, is that Jesus is talking about what we would call the doctrine of election. Now I know that some of you sitting there just cringed already. Some because you're afraid you're about to get nailed with a doctrinal lecture that will put you to sleep. Some of you because it just, you've heard the word and it just doesn't resonate with your understanding of Christianity and how things are, are supposed to work. But what I want you to see, my intent is not to just nail you or try to convince you of a, a doctrinal position. But what we need to see is that the reason that Jesus is revealing this is not just to straighten out our theology But in these statements, Jesus gives us reason for both a radical confidence, comfort, and a radical humility that both go together in a way that is not normal and is not natural. We first consider the confidence or the the comfort that we have. It it comes in in the first statement that he has, that everyone that the Father draws, uh, that gives to Jesus is going to come to Jesus. And he's simply expressing what the Bible teaches in in several different places, and that is that God has known and has loved a people 
from before there was time and before there was an earth. The Apostle Paul says something very similar when he writes to us in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. We're told in all these passages that God is in control. God has known us. He has chosen a people. He has called us. And, and this truth is the basis for comfort and a tremendous confidence. Why? Well, it's because it reminds us that God, who created everything, knows everything about us. He knows our most faithless moments. He knows our most vulgar thoughts. He knows our most egregious ways in which we have denied or betrayed him or the most egregious ways in which we have hurt others and one another. He knows the depths of our failures and he knows those things that we try most to hide from other people so that they will not know the truth about us in our lives. And yet, he loved us and he chose us in Christ. And that truth, whether you're ready to accept it fully or not, stands in opposition to the great problem of religion that we all are prone to experience. Because what religion promotes in every one of us is that feeling that we must, I must, get my act together. I must do whatever it takes to get right enough, do enough right stuff in order to be worthy of God's love or worthy of God's grace. And much of our anxiety and our angst and our fear and our depression rests on that religious impulse that is in all of us because we know, if we're honest, that we will never be worthy enough to be in God's presence. How much good stuff do we need to do before it is enough? And the only standard that Scripture gives us about this is this, is if we have failed at any point, at any time, no matter how long or how short of a period of time, no matter how much good stuff you do, it doesn't make up for what we fail to do because we're supposed to do the good stuff in the first place. So you never earn more than what you failed. And we know this instinctively, even if we try to tell ourselves otherwise. And yet what Jesus is declaring here is to those of us who know that we are not worthy and know that we have not earned our way back and cannot earn our way back, he declares this, those the Father has given me I will never cast out. And it's important that you understand that in the Greek, the word never means never. It's one of those tricky things. <laughs> and some of you need to hear this. Because you're sitting and wrestling with guilt for failures. Whether others know them or not feel that you cannot be close to God and you need to hear Jesus speaking to you and saying those the Father has given me I will never cast out 
See, that's an absolute tremendous comfort that is not about you and based upon your performance or your failures, but upon the grace of God and the gift of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is not only a great comfort, but it is a great confidence because we continually come back to that truth, and that is a confidence that never changes because it is a stable, historic, reliable truth that we need to be reminding ourselves over and over. And Jesus is teaching this so that we would understand the the depth of our need of what he has done and what God has done so that we would believe and trust and experience. Here's the problem. For whatever warped reasons, some of us have turned this beautiful doctrine of election into a beauty pageant and thinking that somehow if we are in Christ, it's because we have done enough that we are better, smarter than others and have now earned or been chosen because of something that we have done. And there's probably no more evidence of that than what we've seen unfold in a couple of generations of the culture wars, where many evangelical Christians have decided they're going to Christianize a culture by demanding that a world that doesn't know Christ would live in the standard of Christ. And if that's not bad enough, all the while turning a blind eye to ourselves when we fail to reflect Christ. Is it any wonder that the world is fed up with us when we distort this incredible truth. We use the doctrine of election as a reason for us to be proud or to be arrogant when the point of it is to be the only ground of our confidence and our comfort and also to be the ground of a radical humility which is what Jesus is saying. We, we've had this idea that the world, the culture, the other people around us should live as if they're Christians. And what Jesus is telling the people here is that no one comes to Jesus unless God does a work within them. And so we're expecting for people to behave in a way that they really cannot behave. Even while we pretend that it's not necessary for us to behave in this. And in, in Jesus in verse 44 As he says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day as well. What we need to recognize about this is what Jesus is saying to us is, yes, you are loved and chosen if you are a child of God, but you are loved and chosen not because of anything that you have done or anything that you have earned, but because you have been given a gift of God. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. And so in other words, we who are children of God, it's not because there's anything better or superior or smarter or sharper about us. It's about God who has given us a gift. And that is a humbling reality. Now, no doubt somebody is thinking, but doesn't the Bible say whosoever will? And the answer is yes, it does. But when we think about when the Bible says whosoever will, it's, it's really, it's related, but it's talking about something different than what Jesus is talking about here. 
See, there's a difference between will and can. One that most of us learned, or at least were taught, whether we learned it or not, by our parents when we were children. It's the same difference as may I and can I. Now think about it for a moment. Put yourself back into your childhood, and you, late afternoon, home from school, not quite dinner time yet, and you smell fresh cookies baking. And you can just see, even though you're not in the room, the oozing, dripping chocolate chips. And you make your way into the kitchen, and you say, Mom, can I have a cookie? And she says, of course you can. And then as you're reaching for it, she says, but you may not. What was mom doing at that point? She's telling us the difference between, well, one, it's an English lesson, and so she doesn't want us to sound foolish for the rest of our lives. Some of our mothers didn't succeed as well as some of your mothers, but that's... But there's a clear distinction that is being made there between what we are physically able to do and what we are permitted to do. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, except that we're reversing it when you're talking about the doctrine of election when it's compared to the whosoever will. See, the gospel was declared to people everywhere. It's a free offer of the gospel. And all are permitted to approach Christ. But what Jesus is declaring here, which is also seen throughout the scripture and experienced in the lives as we see them and and the people that we know, is that just because they're permitted, they're not able to. Now, we need to see that in the context of what Jesus is talking about here, too, because it must have sounded crazy to these people. What do you mean we can't come to you? We just did. That's why we're talking to you. That's how you knew we were grumbling. In fact, we came to you on the other side of the water. You tried to get away from us, and we went over there. We came to you, and now you're saying you can't come. We're not talking about physical proximity to the body of Jesus. We're talking about a spiritual, Jesus is talking about the spiritual reality that no matter what, where we position our bodies, that unless God does a work, we cannot come, we cannot believe, we cannot be found in Christ, and we cannot relate to God. And Jesus, as he's teaching this, is helping them understand the necessity that they and we have for him to come, and yet the beauty and the glory of God's grace when we believe. And then he goes on. People were still confused. Remember again, as Ken touched on uh, last week, just talking about the manna. They had challenged Jesus who had given them bread, the one-time trick, and said, well, but Moses gave us manna for 40 years. So they were still on this whole manna kick. Jesus reoriented their perspective, first of all, reminding that Moses gave you nothing. Moses was the distributor. God was the giver. Moses was the intermediary, and now God is giving something else. But the, the manna, everyone who ate it, while it is a, a tremendous and miraculous provision of God, everyone who ate it died. It had limited value. Jesus is saying, but what I am offering you and what I am has no limits. It's eternal. It is life that has no end. And these are confusing things to the people as as they were listening to these. And then Jesus, I find it amazing because he's seeing they're not getting it and he doesn't dumb it down so people like you and me can get it. He ratchets it up and then builds upon the metaphor of the bread 
seeing that they were missing it, and then he goes for the grotesque, certainly to grab their attention, but also to demonstrate something that is vitally important that we need to understand if the characteristics of both comfort, confidence and humility are going to be born in our lives. We see the evidence of that. We pick it up in, in verse 51. Jesus continues to talk about uh, the, the bread of life. And in verse 51, we read this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the people were thinking, what in the world? I mean, these were kosher people. They have no category for cannibalism. And that's what they heard him saying. And he knew that's what they were saying. In fact, it's these words and other times that Jesus talks about that that so characterized the early church that when the Romans were trying to figure the Christians out and they heard somebody was going to go hang out with them, they would say, you're going to go hang out with those cannibals? I mean, they... They think that they eat the flesh of the one who was their founder. Jesus' words are very provocative here. And the fact that they were grossed out is an indication that they understood, in one sense, what it is that he was saying, even if they had no understanding of his intention. What is it Jesus was saying? Now, some have looked at the language that he uses here and the imagery that he's using here, and they've assumed, therefore, that Jesus was preparing, to, preparing them for a, a Palm Sunday or a, a, a Monday Thursday that was to come, Passover that was to come later, a year later, when he would institute the Lord's Supper as uh, something that is to be practiced by his followers um, until he comes back. And certainly the, the Lord's Supper... Is related here, but the context would seem to suggest that's not what Jesus is doing. I mean, think about the whole nature of the conversation. He's just building upon metaphors that had begun when he fed people bread, when they began to talk about manna, and he's talking about bread, and now he's ratcheting it up. The bread is his flesh, and then he brings in the whole idea of drink. And so the whole context as Jesus is building up the metaphor is not really suggesting that Jesus is going to tell them, now here's a new religious ritual that you are to participate in. Again, while the Lord's Supper is connected, it is not the essence of what he's saying. So what is he saying? I think the essence of what Jesus is essentially saying to us is this. Is that if you want any part of God, you need to swallow the whole gospel and that he himself is the gospel. He himself, who is God, who came in the flesh in bodily form, who lived a life, who died a death, and rose again from the grave, all of that is essential to the good news that is declared that we must believe if we are going to be in right connection to God and receive any of the benefits that he promises to us. And yet, as obvious as it would seem that those are truths, that understanding pushes back against some of the trends in the contemporary American church. Because there are many, maybe even most, 
that are gathered in churches today that may be hearing or believing what we would say is a moralistic gospel which declares that it really doesn't matter whether Jesus was an actual man or whether he actually died or actually rose from the dead. What matters is what he taught or what he inspires so that we would all be good people. That's a counterfeit gospel. Because Jesus is saying, no, 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 it matters. My flesh, my physical being, you must swallow that. that and you must believe that. Everything that I am, everything that I did, that hope that you have is rooted in that reality. It pushes back not only against a moralistic counterfeit gospel, but it pushes back against an activism, activistic counterfeit gospel as well. And that's one that I'm seeing growing, even in evangelical churches, and I fear even among some in our own denomination. But the activistic gospel can come in two ways. One, similar to the moralistic, one that would deny the physical reality of Christ, and some who will assume that everybody knows, we already know that, let's move on. And the focus of the activistic gospel is inspired by what Christ has done, we do good to others. And I want you to hear, there are people that are doing tremendous things, and I have friends who are, I think, susceptible to this, and they are doing things that are not only impressive, they are things that I admire that they are doing, and yet in their teaching, they are not bringing people to the fact that we are to swallow Christ, flesh, blood, personhood, and all that he's accomplished. Most of my friends believe it, and they assume the people they're teaching believe it, and so they just moved on to other things. But an assumed gospel soon becomes no gospel. And Jesus is saying, we begin with what he has done in his flesh. And that reality, as we'll see in a moment, bears fruit. Bearing fruit apart from swallowing Christ may do wonderful for the people in the community, but does nothing to bring them into the presence of Jesus. They're the very people that Jesus later, Jesus would teach and say, you've done impressive things, but I don't know you. They had assumed the gospel and had been active. And what Jesus says also presses back against a doctrinalistic gospel, which our tradition is probably the most likely to buy into. What I mean by that is they can give you excruciating detail as to everything Jesus did and why it was necessary. And even in the detail of their doctrine, they don't have any personal experience of God's grace in their lives. Jesus says, no, 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 you must swallow. And there's nothing you can swallow that you don't actually have personal interaction with. We must swallow not just the doctrine, but Christ. And we do so by faith. Now, somebody might say, well, but doesn't it matter what we do? I mean, aren't we supposed to become better people? And aren't we supposed to be engaged? And aren't we supposed to have sound doctrine? And 
The answer to that is yes, but Jesus addresses it in a proper proportion here, in a proper order. And we look at verse 56, and I think we have the answer to that dilemma. Because in verse 56, what Jesus says is this, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What does that mean? Well, it means those who will swallow the whole gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished in his body, Christ dwells within us and we are in connection with him. Now, it's a whole other doctrine we don't have time to talk about today, talk about the union with Christ, but the implication of it is this, is that when we swallow the gospel Christ dwells with us in us in a very real way as the apostle Paul later would write and so that I no longer live I was crucified with Christ but the life I now live I live in Christ and Christ who lives within me and so the practical application of that is when we swallow the gospel and we are empowered by the gospel of Christ who's dwelling within us the promise of God that he who began the good work that brought us to faith and enabled us to believe the gospel will begin to bear fruit in our lives, which shows in our character, becoming more and more like Christ, and our deeds, which is demonstrating compassion and declaring hope and freeing the captives for those who are need of set free. See, the truth of the gospel is never just in the externals. It begins in the feeding, swallowing of the gospel, and then bears fruit. And Jesus is saying, this is a necessity, but this is also a promise. And so as we look at this particular passage, we see gloriously the picture of what Christ has done for us and what we must know, believe, and become. And on this Palm Sunday that leads us into the Passion Week, but we're not limited to that, but the whole world is focusing on the historical events of what Christ has done, we have the opportunity to remind ourselves of the significance, but do so not all the time. Because we are told that the ground of our humility is that you cannot come unless the Father draws you. The ground of our confidence and hope is that I will never let you go. And the ground of our faith is to swallow the gospel and Christ abides in us. May we believe and be raised up and experience God's presence now and for eternity. Father, bless us with understanding of these words, though they are hard. They are hard to understand and they are hard to swallow. And yet by your love and your gift, enable us to do so. And may we feed upon them every day, every week, for all eternity. That we may be a people to the praise of the glory of your grace in Christ. Amen.